The Square Peg Podcast. Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasos. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. Keith Johnson, owner of Camino Tattoo Studio, has been a professional licensed tattoo artist in Las Cruces since 2000. He does everything from American traditional to photorealistic tattooing, and he works by appointment only. Email him today to get your custom tattoo. You can find him at CaminoTattooStudio.com or from the bio in the link at www.CaminoTattooStudio.com. Of course, you can also find Camino Tattoo Studio on Instagram and Facebook. And just a little personal note for me, um, turning 48 here real soon, didn't get my first tattoo until about two years ago. And um, while Keith didn't do that one, he's done three since then. And uh, I've been going through this kind of transition, you know, in my later 40s, if you will, and uh, made some changes to my fitness, to my, my supplementation and my diet. And I've seen some big changes in my body. And I'll tell you, I've never loved my body. I probably never will. But with the changes I've made and the artwork that Keith has uh, been able to put on my body, learning to hate it a little bit less every day. So if you want to be uh, like me and get some good artwork on you, give give Keith a, an email uh, and, and go get your tattoo. The Square Peg Podcast. My guest today has a unique position as someone I don't know more than very casually on a personal level but for whom I hold the most sincere affection because of the close relationship he's had with my parents for two decades. Cantor Michael Shockett of Temple Road of Shalom in Falls Church, Virginia, was a broadcast journalist and a big city police officer before he studied at the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in New York City, where he earned the title of Cantor. He currently serves as the chaplain coordinator for Fairfax County Police Department and has provided similar services to the FBI, the CIA, and other assorted federal entities. Cantor Shockett, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Thanks, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you know what, I have uh, looked forward to this uh, interview for quite some time. I know you and I spoke uh, about it uh, in person uh, a couple months ago in July, and I, something tells me that we spoke about it before then. Uh, to say, on some level, I don't know if we had emailed, um, but in any case, this uh, this was something I've looked forward to doing for a long time. And um, I'm glad we're finally able to do it. Did you have an opportunity to listen to our, our intro music, Barrymore by the Searchlight Needles? I did. What a great song. And, uh, you know, it kind of um, seems to me as a song that says that we can do what we want to do in life. And, and that's a really great thing. And I, I thought it was terrific and great choice for you. Well, there's a reason I use that as my as my intro and outro music. I, that's my favorite song of theirs. And you know, the joke is Robert Martinez uh, is a friend of mine. I know through uh, he's actually uh, was the uh, commissioner of the uh, Extreme Crucis Wrestling, the professional wrestling uh, promotion for which I've refereed for almost ten years. Uh, and that's I know. I and mean, our joke is that I basically talk about how much his band sucks and the music sucks. Um, <laughs> but but actually, I I do love it. Now you know one thing I'd actually forgotten about when I was writing up all my questions for this episode was you just finished um, 
uh, a sabbatical, or I don't know if you're still on sabbatical, but you just finished uh, an RV trip with your wife, and you were actually out in this part of the country. And if I'm not mistaken, you were in Las Cruces a week or two ago. Absolutely, and what a beautiful place! I had never been to Las Cruces before. We went. Um, we we've been gone for 30 days. We just got back and went across the country to Los Angeles, and then back through um, New Mexico and Texas, and on our way home. And so we were able to stop through in Las Cruces. We went to the um, White Sands National Park, which was just unbelievable. Um, really enjoyed visiting there and seeing it. And gosh, I wish I had the views that you have every day. You know, that's that's something that um, you have to get used to when you're from the East Coast. And, of course, I'd been to El Paso because my mother grew up here uh, right down the road in El Paso. And, you know, visiting my grandparents when I was a kid. But when you move to the desert, it, it takes a couple of years for your eyes to adjust. You miss the green and the trees. Um, but after a couple of years, you, you basically you get to the point where you can see the different shades of brown and uh, the clear mm-hmm. blue skies. And now you stayed at the KOA, right? We stayed at the KOA right uh, in, uh, uh, I forgot the name of the town, Al- Alamogordo. So- oh, okay, so you didn't. Know. I've actually stayed there. We did an overnight. I mean, Alamogordo is only an hour away, but I thought you were staying at the one in Las Cruces. Now, the one in Las Cruces gives you one of the best views of the city because it's on the West Mesa. You can see over the uh, city, and you can see the Oregon Mountains. Now, this I've always told people this October, November are probably the best times of the year to be here. What, what was the weather like when you were here? It was It was beautiful, you know. It's funny when we were driving in through the to the park and we saw these white sands. It it seemed like snow, right? The right. way it looked. Yet we were in shorts and t-shirts because it was such a beautiful day. Um, so it, it had this like you know double meaning for me. Um, the the beauty of the of the area and the the beauty of the weather as well. Yeah, you you really can't. I I um I I feel very very special, very lucky uh, that I get to live here. Uh, you know the Oregon Mountains. Now, did you actually get? You stayed in Alamo. Um, obviously, you had to travel west to get to the to White Sands. Where did you go after that? Did you make it to Las Cruces? We did well. So we came in from the west. So instead okay. of coming uh, from the east coast, we were coming to Las Cruces on the way back from Los Angeles. So that's why we changed our plans. Originally, we were going to stay uh, at that KOA, but um, the way it came in, we we stayed at. We went to the uh, the park first. So we went through Las Cruces, we drove through Las Cruces, and then we went to the park, and then we went on to stay at the KOA after that. Okay, so, and you know, the the one thing about, I always, you know, growing up, and I would always hear people talk about go east, go west, and I always felt confused by that. It's easy in Las Cruces, because the Oregon Mountains are east. As long as you remember that, you'll never be lost. And, uh, you know, living here a little over, you know, 22, 23 years now, the Oregon Mountains, to me, are the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I mean, you just can't. I feel very special uh, and very lucky, and it's, it's like a beacon, you know. <laughs> you can't, yeah. uh, something you'll probably never forget. But, um, yeah. you know, one thing. I was I, overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by those mountains, really. It was just a beautiful sight. It, it's something you'll never forget. Um, you know, yeah. Michael, one thing I don't know about you, actually, is where are you from and how you grew up. And did you grow up in a musical family? Uh, Where did your interest in performing music come from? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up in Baltimore, uh, and and when I was in high school, uh, I sang in my you know high school choir, and that's really where I started singing. And my very first synagogue job was singing in a choir at a synagogue when I was in high school uh, on Saturday mornings, and 
you know, I dabbled in it for a little while, but I really didn't get the singing bug until much later in life. So it was kind of fun to sing, but I didn't think I was a good singer. Um, I really wanted to go into television news, and that's what I did first, uh, starting from my junior year of high school. I started working in television there in Baltimore. Oh wow! So I didn't, I didn't, wasn't sure about the order of you whether you were in broadcast journalism before law enforcement or vice versa. But now the home that you grew up in, uh, how what, what kind of observance was it? What was it a reform, a conservative uh, Jewish home or congregation that you belonged to? Uh, what, what was that? So what my was par- yeah, my parents were um, they grew up Orthodox, right? Okay. But it was the kind of Orthodox where uh, my my great grandmother lived with my mother and her family uh, upstairs, and my mother and her family would have crabs which you know is you can't <laughs> eat crabs if you're kosher uh, in the basement so that my grandmother, who was spoke Yiddish only, wouldn't hear them, right? So that's how they grew up. And my, my grandfather, even though um, it wasn't on the shocket side, and I'll explain that in a minute, but my grandfather was a kosher butcher. So they ate kosher meat all the time with my grandmother, and that's what their profession was, um, but yet... Uh, you know, they were really, I think, reformed Jews at heart because they would go downstairs to eat uh, Maryland crabs. But I, uh, it's funny that my grandfather on my mother's side was a kosher butcher, yet my last name, Shocket, on my dad's side actually means kosher butcher. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> What are the so chances? He had, yeah, he had, uh, in his very distant um, past, he had a kosher butcher somewhere there. Uh, but it was funny that my grandfather on my mother's side was the kosher butcher. <laughs> well, it's it's funny um, you mentioned the you know the 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 observance of or or not of of kosher you know uh, kosher dietary uh, observances. You know, in my own family, my parents never you know they never pretended to have a kosher home. But my mom never felt comfortable having pork in the house. I mean, she made bacon yeah. once or twice when we were kids. But you know, when it came to lunch meats, deli meats, we didn't have ham. Uh, we of course never had ham on on Thanksgiving, and um, right. but I, I find it. And I had a you know my my paternal grandmother uh, pretended to keep kosher, but she ate shrimp. So I think we all have our little our little <laughs> exceptions, exactly right. you know. So and now and, now and you know, go ahead. My, when my parents got married, though, they decided to become reformed. So even though they both grew up Orthodox, they joined a fledgling reform congregation in Baltimore uh, that was about two hundred families. Uh, that my uncle had started, and uh, that's where they grew up. My dad was president of the congregation. I mean, that's where my mom and dad joined, and my dad was president of the congregation. My mom taught confirmation. So I grew up in this reform atmosphere, very liberal, um, very social action-oriented, um, and that was my upbringing as a Jew. Well, you you went to college at some point. Did you go to the University of Maryland? No, I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York. Oh, wow. And did you study uh, journalism? Yeah, I studied uh, broadcasting. Uh, they, have a, they have a great communications school, and, uh, and so that's what I wanted to do with my life, was be a TV news reporter. And I decided to go to Ithaca to do that, to achieve that goal, and I did. I, I graduated... Um, doing really well at, at Ithaca College, graduated, got an award from the Radio Television News Directors Association, and then ended up getting hired by WMAR-TV in Baltimore, the NBC station, right after college. Now, what did you, um, how long did you work for them, and what kind of assignments did you have? 
So I was a general assignment reporter. I covered everything and, and, and anything. A lot of what I covered was police and fire news because that's what general assignment reporters, you know, do, especially in inner cities like I was in. And uh, I was with, with Channel 2, uh, WMAR, for uh, almost four years. And I was really young. You know, I was 21 or 22 when I got this job. Baltimore was a pretty um, uh, significant market to start a broadcasting career in. And some people at the television station didn't like that. They liked the fact that uh, most people went to smaller cities and worked their way up. And here's this, you know, young kid right out of college who's becoming a reporter, you know, in the 21st market in Baltimore. So they put me to the test. And, um, and sometimes I passed and sometimes I failed, but I got burnt out pretty quickly. And, but I really loved covering police and fire news. And I became friends with a number of police officers in Baltimore and said, you know what I really want to do in my life that would be a little bit more stable than this, uh, news business is be a, a public information officer for a police department. I thought that would be great in terms of I've always loved police work. I always, you know, admired police officers and was influenced by them. And this way, with my communication skills, I could do something still in my field. So this was 1986, 85, 86. I, because I was a reporter, I had access. And so I made an appointment with the commissioner of the Baltimore City Police Department. His name was Bishop Robinson. And I said, you know, Commissioner, I am really interested in becoming a spokesman for a police department, but I'd like to do it by going to a police academy, going out on the street, getting real-world training as a police officer in Baltimore, uh, and then becoming a public information officer, but a sworn public information officer. And he said, you know, love to have you in this department. We'll keep you out on the street for about a year, and then we'll, we'll bring you into PIO. So we shook on it should have had it in writing, but we shook on it <laughs> and I um, decided to take the plunge. And I went from being a reporter to being a, a recruit in the police academy in Baltimore. Everyone there thought that I was there to do an undercover expose on the police department. <laughs> um, because they and, knew you. you know, I mean, they knew who you were. They, yeah, they knew me, but they didn't really trust me. And I'll tell you that this was the same time. Do you remember the um, the show Homicide, Life on the Street? Do you remember that show? Yeah, yeah. That's when it was getting so, started. Yeah. So the writer, the creator of that show, was a reporter for the Baltimore Sun by the name of David Simon. And David was a reporter. He went undercover, embedded with the homicide unit in Baltimore City Police, the same time that I became a recruit. And his expose started with uh, like a five or six part series in the sun about homicide what it was like uh that turned into a book uh and then television show and uh he became famous he then did the wire right and uh and now i'm a canter larry so there you go some interesting yeah. paths now you and i have actually spoken uh, about the not so inconspicuous absence uh, of Jews and first responder jobs, and to to, to some degree, the uh, the current U U.S. Armed Forces, and I hope one day we can do that again. But tell me, um, what was what was the reaction on a scale of one to ten? What kind of resistance did you get from your mother? Oh my God! 
let me just tell you that your mom and my and 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 I had lots of conversations about this, right? <laughs> because um, my mother, it was the worst thing that could have happened to my mother. I think um, she did not want me to become a police officer, especially in Baltimore City, right? And she and my dad were just so unhappy about it. Um, and you know, I the best thing, the best day was when I told him that I was leaving the police department. Of course. <laughs> they were much happier. But my mom actually, even though she gave me a, a lot of grief about it, her she had a, an interior design business in Baltimore City, and I was assigned to the Eastern District, and my district ended about a block away from where her office was. So I would, you know, when I was working on my shift, I would take lunch and go and have lunch with her in uniform at, in her office. And she would be so proud of me. You know, she would really, even though she was not happy with my choice, she supported me through it. And I was very appreciative of that. And she probably cavelled in front of her, her customers when they would come in and tell, tell them all about her son, the police officer, and, and make a big exactly. deal about you. Of course. Exactly. So, so in, and I know I'm not, you know, particularly familiar with the, the, the exact geography of Baltimore, of course, been there, you know, many times, but you said you worked in the Eastern district, you know, what kind of neighborhoods, uh, what kind of beats, I'm assuming at the very least, uh, and we'll get into how long you were on the job, but, uh, I assume you obviously spent a couple of years in patrol. T- just c- tell me about what kind of assignments you had and, uh, and, and, and some of the, the more interesting or, or an interesting experience you can think of. Yeah, sure. So, uh, the Baltimore city is a, you know, it's, it's made, um, it's a small, it's a big city, but it's small patrol areas because they're so densely populated. So I was in the Eastern district, which, um, is inner city, Baltimore, um, 98%, uh, you know, African American, uh, lots of property crimes and crimes against persons, a lot of drug crimes that kind of thing. Um, my assi- I was assigned to a shift uh, that would switch every 30 days to, whether, to day work or midnights or evenings, right? We, didn't, we were not on permanent shifts. So, you know, just when you were getting used to being on midnights, for example, you switched to evening shift, four to, four to midnight, uh, and, and then to day work from eight to four. Um, we would go in, we would not have individual vehicles, so we would take the vehicle from the person who was in it the shift before us. So those vehicles, you know, were operating 24 hours a day, um, and they were not the greatest vehicles because of that. Uh, but we would get in our vehicle, and in my squad, there were three different groups of officers. So our Eastern District was split into three sectors, and within each sector there were um, four or five patrol officers. Um, some of the patrol cars, most of the patrol cars were solo police officers, and then one in each sector was a double unit, uh, meaning we had a partner. So we would just move around, um, and generally I was in an area just north of Johns Hopkins Hospital, um, which, uh, you know, saw a lot of domestic crimes I was called out on i went out on a lot of drug cases stabbing shootings things like that um it really was growing up in bulk in in the uh outskirts of baltimore in a very jewish neighborhood uh it was really quite different than what i was used to 
And I was sad that these people who lived there um, didn't have the resources that I had growing up. And I always uh, wished that I could make life better for them, but it really wasn't possible. You know, it was, I was really just running from call to call, answering these calls for service. Um, it, but it, it was an eye-opening experience. Uh, I remember, you know, chasing people. I remember um, being involved in a hostage situation where somebody that one of my partners was chasing ended up taking a hostage and go running into a house. And we ran after him into this first floor. He was on the upper floor, you know, and the screaming and shouting that was going on. I still remember that to this day. Um, I was involved in a shooting where my partner was shot. Um, and I was involved in various different kinds of arrests. I think I had a total in my year and a half on the street, I had about 70 arrests, or I guess it was on the street for about a year uh, in the Academy for six months. So I had about 70 arrests. Most of those were drug arrests, some domestics, things like that. Now, I would imagine that when you have that kind of call volume, uh, you don't have an opportunity to do a lot of proactive stuff. No, we really don't. Um, I mean, even today, you know, when they're bringing back um, foot patrols here in Fairfax County to try and build relationships with the community, that was where foot patrols were so big back in Baltimore City. You know, the officers would walk the beat. But we couldn't even do that because we were just running from call to call. You know, there were other, other people that were assigned, kind of the old timers, I would say, would be the ones that worked the business districts, and they would, they would walk the beat and get to know those businesses. But I was really more of a, you know, answer a call for service kind of cop. Yeah, and unfortunately, the, the kind of neighborhoods you were patrolling probably were in greater need of, of that kind of relationship building. And that's, and that's a really unfortunate thing. Um, now, yeah. you, you said you spent a total, you know, six months at the academy and a year, year on the street. What was it that drove you uh, or, or made you decide to change careers? So what happened was it was August of 1988, and it was this shooting that occurred. Um, I was on a midnight shift and it was just at the end of that shift. So it was about quarter of eight in the morning or maybe seven thirty in the morning. And a call came out on our radio, uh, with the tones for signal 13, which for us meant that an officer needed help. And the call then, uh, was explained that there was an off duty officer who was on his way to work and he was in pursuit of a suspect who had pointed a gun in him. And the backstory is that this uh, officer was with his family. They were taking him to drop him off. He was a detective taking him to drop him off at headquarters. And uh, as he's in the car with his family, he sees this, um, this guy in a car ahead of him, roll down the window, pull out a, uh, a gun and fire. And so he tells his, wife to call 911 or actually I don't even know if we had 911 back then but to call the police and to um, and that he was going to get out and try and stop this guy so he gets out of his car the suspect um, sees him and bails out of the car he leaves the car and and so the officer then follows him in foot pursuit and that's when the signal 13 call comes out by the uh, the wife who had called in to the dispatch 
So myself and all of our area units um, responded to the location. We find the, the, the off-duty officer. He tells us what happened, and he said that he saw the suspect go into a particular housing uh, community. They were row houses uh, in Baltimore, and he didn't know which one, but he knew the block. So we were about six or seven of us, and um, we decided to do a house-to-house search. I was the cover officer, which meant that I carried the shotgun and covered the three officers who went door to door to knock on each door. And I stood off to the side. Three officers were standing on the, on each doorstep and we would knock on the door and see uh, if anybody knew anything. And we come to this one house in the middle of the block and this older gentleman opens the door just a, a little bit. And my partner, Tom says, hey, we're looking for this guy, and he gives a description of the guy. you know anything about it? And the, um, the gentleman says, no, you know, I don't know what's going on. You know, what's all the commotion? And Tom says, you know, we, we're looking for someone who had a gun, and we know he ran into this block, but we don't know which house. And at that same moment, while Tom is talking to him, on our radios, the description and the license plate of the car that the suspect was driving in, which was then subsequently called in to the, to the dispatch, comes back on our radios to the house we're standing in front of, registered to that house. So, you know, we, that was a clue. We knew something <laughs> was up. And, um, and so Tom, who was kind of an aggressive police officer, he said, hey, you know, uh, is this your vehicle? And he said the license plate. And the guy said, yes. So, well, that's the suspect's vehicle. Tell me what's really going on. And the gentleman said, well, okay, it's my son. He was in Vietnam. He's got some mental health issues. But he's okay, he's inside, and I've handled him before, and it's going to be fine. And Tom said, no, I'm sorry, we need to come in. And he grabs the screen door to open it up, starts to walk in, and as soon as he walks in, this guy's son, who was the suspect, was standing behind the door, turns around, fires at Tom. Tom sees the gun, you know, immediately, and turns to run out. But in this split second, he gets shot in in the... Um, shoulder in his left shoulder kind of above where the vest where the armored vest goes and uh he runs out yelling you know i'm shot i'm shot my first inclination was to pick up the uh shotgun and to fire or to you know but i had no visual of the suspect because the suspect actually shot from inside the house and i was outside off to the side so instead i grabbed tom to bring him to to get him out of harm's way, uh, the other two officers ended up. One of them fired into the house, missed the suspect, but fired into the house, and uh, everyone took cover. There were more signal thirteens. It was a crazy situation. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of situation, but let me tell you that it is traumatic for everyone, not only the person who shot, but everyone involved. You know, I've, um, I haven't been in active shooter situations like that, and I can say this now that my, my mother is not I'm no longer with us to hear. I've definitely cheated yeah. death more than a few times in my 22-plus yeah, yeah. years. But was that what made you decide to change careers? Yeah, so um, so when when Tom ended up being okay, you know, he I stayed with him, uh, did the first aid, and um, tried to keep him from going into shock. He ended up uh, going to the hospital. He was very lucky. But he came out, and um, and all of us were traumatized by that. And I said, you know, it's been a year on the street. I really want to go into public information. But 
in that time that I was in the academy and on the street, the commissioner that I had this agreement with, he left the department and he went somewhere else. And now there was a new commissioner and he didn't know me. And I was a patrol officer and didn't have access to the commissioner anymore. So I put in a transfer for public information, but there were no openings. So I could have just stayed in patrol, but the pressure was too great. At that point, my mom said, you know, what are you doing? My rabbi said I was crazy. Everybody said, you know, why are you doing this? why are you doing this job where they're shooting at you? And so I thought the pressure was too great. And so I left, I went back to, to television. I should have, you know, really, if I would have been smart about it, I would have worked at a different law enforcement agency um, that was a little safer. And I think if I would have done that, I would have probably been in law enforcement my whole career. That's so, my guess. So, so how do you end up turning your interest? What, what, what is it about the, the clergy that, that, that drew you? So I went back to television and worked in TV and for a couple of years and trying to figure out what I want to do with my life because I really wasn't happy in television. And it was my rabbi who said, you know, why are you not looking at what's right in front of you? So I grew up in my synagogue. As I said, my dad was president. My mom was a confirmation teacher. I was, I loved the music of my congregation. I was so close with my cantor. Um, I loved going to services to sing along with him. And even while I was a police officer, I had formed a choir at the temple. So I came in my uniform and I was conducting the choir. Um, so it was a big part of my life. But n I never saw myself as a musician. I saw myself as a someone who loved being at the temple from a spiritual point of view. But I couldn't see myself uh, in that role. And my rabbi was a scholar to no end. And I just could not see myself in that way. So it took a while. But my rabbi said, look this is what you love to do. This is your hobby. You're, you're where you feel at home being in the synagogue. Why don't you consider being a rabbi or a cantor? And he said, if you, if, since you love music so much, go seek out a cantor that's a graduate of the Hebrew Union College, because if you're going to be a cantor, I want, you should go to the Hebrew Union College. My cantor growing up was a soloist. He never had any formal training. He was a great cantor, but he was basically the Friday night singer, and during the week he, was, he worked in insurance. Um, so I did that. I found a cantor in Baltimore that I befriended, and he took me under his wing. And it took me about two years, but I decided, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. And and um, investigated the cantorate and ended up applying to the Hebrew Union College, which is the cantorial school in New York. Uh, got a lot of musical training during that time while I was figuring it out. Uh, a lot of music voice lessons and theory classes and all that stuff and Hebrew classes and ended up getting accepted, and, and in 1990, I, I began my journey in, in cantorial school, which the first year was in Jerusalem. Now, I, you know, it, didn't, it never really occurred to me until you just said this, that the cantor program would, would be different than the, a different school, a different seminary than, than the rabbi. And I actually, now, I, I was going to ask you another question. I don't know if the timing was correct. I actually have a first cousin, um, Michelle, I won't give her her full name. Uh, she doesn't know I'm talking about her, <laughs> but she has actually has a PhD in Jewish education, and she actually taught at Jewish the theological seminary in New York City. And I don't know mm -hmm, it was that's a conservative. Um, yeah, she may have. It was the late '90s, early 2000s, I think. Maybe it was maybe it was in the '90s. Anyway, when I was reading your you know your bio, I, I was wondering if you had crossed paths with her, but I would imagine you may have had that conversation with my parents. But um, in any case, now, can you give uh, a 
an explanation, a biblical explanation, if you will, or or a lesson on kind of how how and why music is such an integral part of uh, Judaism and Jewish worship. Absolutely. So music reaches the the soul. It really does. It goes right to the soul, and um, uh, or some people say it goes right to the heart. Right, and you, it's so powerful. It can bring on emotion, whether it's um, bringing you back to your childhood, whether it's um, causing you to feel sadness because um, the words or the melody can connect you to a place that you aren't normally connected to. Um, It could make you joyful by singing along or clapping hands. And, um, And that's what's always attracted me to Jewish music. It was something about the the identity of um, uh, of who I was as a Jew that connected me to to, to the music um, was so powerful, and I, you know, as I said, I'm not a performer. I I didn't get into this. A lot of cantors were opera singers or performers before they became a cantor. That was not me. I wanted to touch people's hearts. Um, by helping, having them help me sing. So I was very into congregational singing, singing along. Um, you know, your mom was one of the first people that I met when I came to Temple Road of Shalom, and she, um, I think, also felt the power of Jewish music. She loved to sing. She loved to um, feel the community that you feel when you're singing with someone else, right? We're singing in a choir, singing in a congregation. And for me, as the leader of that music, to allow people to, to get in touch with their souls and feel that, that music, so powerful. And, um, and that was, that's always been very meaningful to me. Uh, you know, you may, uh, I don't know, I know you and I haven't talked about this, and you may have heard this from my parents, but I'm, if you haven't figured it out, I kind of march to the beat of my own drum. And um, <laughs> when, I was, when I was training for my bar mitzvah, you know, 35 years ago uh, about I'm thinking mm-hmm. um, I refused actually to, ch- to chant my Torah portion because my philosophy was I don't have a good singing voice who the hell wants to listen to some 13 year old with his voice cracking try to sing and he can't sing so I refuse <laughs> I refuse to do it and I, you know I also joked I've joked with my parents and I've joked recently that uh, you know although I, I my observance and my belief of kind of waned over the years but um Judaism is not a good religion for somebody with attention deficit disorder. <laughs> Sitting mm. through long services, and I've even joked with my mother many times, and and she knows I'm joking, but she kind of still took it a little bit personally. You know, I said, "Mom, if they would cut like if they could cut out like two thirds of the singing, you could make the service like half as long." <laughs> you know, but and, you know, and, and another thing that I think my dad feels the same way too. There is, you know, I'm forty, almost forty eight years old. Something mm. happened between my teens and my 20s where many of the they changed the melodies of many of my favorite songs and i would mm. find myself you know why that was done i don't know i mean some of my favorite songs like adon olam and uh shalom mm. rav i would always get so excited when they would come up in the service because i love them and then they would start singing them and it would be the wrong melody i would just be i would be really really disappointed because like you said yeah. before you know music has the way of touching somebody's heart and touching somebody's soul um and and that was one way that I can I was able to connect with with my faith at the time, and I found it very disappointing. Now an, another story I don't know if you've heard this, you know, you uh, 
obviously uh, knew and, and worked under and with um, uh, Rabbi Berkowitz Rabbi Ber- uh, of yeah. blessed memory. Um, you know, he was the rabbi, you know, ever since I can remember. And yeah. it wasn't until we came to El Paso, and I want to say about 1981, so I was about seven years old. And I believe it was for my, my maternal grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. And we went to the synagogue, and there was this cantor singing. And I mm-hmm. asked my mom or my dad, I said, who's this guy that's singing? Why isn't the rabbi singing? He said, well, that's the cantor. So, well, what do they need a cantor for? Don't they have a rabbi who can sing? And, of course, I didn't, I didn't know that, we, we were, we were, that Rabbi Berkowitz was, was special in that way. I didn't know what a yeah. cantor was. I, didn't, I just thought, well, the rabbis do all the singing. You know, right, um, and right. that was the first time. And you were the first cantor at Temple Road of Shalom. That's right. And and but you know, even though I was the first official cantor, Larry Berkowitz, the rabbi, was really the first cantor because he had such a beautiful voice. He grew up wanting to be a cantor. He sang with his cantor in Budapest, and um, and he was such a mensch of a guy. He just really took me under his wing too, and and he loved the fact that. Um, there was a cantor there following him because uh, he he thought the importance of Jewish music is just needs to be um, underscored at the temple. So I was lucky that there was already this amazing foundation of Jewish of quality Jewish music when I came to Temple Road of Shalom, and I my job was to build upon that. But I, I hear exactly what you're saying, Larry, and I think it's one of the one of the most important things that um, the cantors need to be wary of when they go to a congregation, which is how do you preserve the melodies of the past, but still don't get stuck in the past? And, um, and the problem is, is that music is so subjective, right? What you think, what you love and what, what is, is comforting to you may be not comforting to the person sitting next to you. So how do you as the cantor, you know, um, appeal to everybody. And my answer for that and what I, the way I've been successful is to be diverse, to be able to have music like that Adon Alum you talked about or Shalom Rav, but also have music that is made, you know, was made in the last couple of years for the younger generation that, that, that really connects to that music. So that hopefully in any one service, there's a few things that you'll that each person will like, no matter what background they come from, and that's so important in preserving um, people's memories uh, in 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 Jewish music. Because I was the same way. I, if someone took away my Adon Alum when I was a kid, I would have you know just been all upset. Um, so I I get that, but I also don't want to get stuck in the past either. And there's some beautiful music out there that can really tug at your heartstrings that was made in the last 10 years, right? As opposed to some of that stuff that, that you grew up on, which is also important as well. So it's finding a way of making sure that any one service appeals to as many people as possible, which is hard to do, but it is possible. It, that's a, that's an interesting to hear you talk about new music because when we're talking about things biblical, we we you just assume everything is you know several, several thousand years old. Um, right now, you are the head chaplain, or you run the chaplain program for the Fairfax County Police Department, which is uh, a county with a population of over a million people. And if I'm not mistaken, their police department has about thirteen or fourteen hundred officers. Correct. It's oh. it's about twelve hundred right now, with um, also a, a significant civilian 
um, forced to. Okay. Now, how did you get involved uh, with that program? So when I graduated cantorial school, my first congregation was down in New Orleans. And um, when I was down there, I approached the New Orleans Police Department and said, you know, look, I, I was a police officer in Baltimore. I've now um, an ordained cantor, um, which is like a rabbi, very similar to a rabbi, but my where we where we are the same is in the clergy role as an ordin as an ordained clergy person. And I um, know what officers have been through because I've been through some of those things. So I would love to be a chaplain. So they they brought me in as a chaplain there. That was in 1996. Uh, I was working with the New Orleans police. And then two years later is when I decided to come up to uh, Northern Virginia. And as soon as I got here, I approached the Fairfax County Police Department, their head chaplain. Um, and I said, look, I, you know, this is what I've done. I've now been a chaplain for two years in New Orleans, but I was a police officer. And they loved having me. They brought me on. Um, the rest is history. In, in, do you remember when there was this big sniper situation in Washington, D.C. area? That um, was... It was the fall. Maybe it was the fall of two thousand two. That was going on right at the yeah yeah. To fall of two thousand two. Yeah. Okay, so I that was a big. Um, I would hold the whole area. You know, was kind of felt like they were under siege during that time. Right, and that's when our chaplain program really took off. And the way it worked in our department, I don't know how it works in your department, but our department was um, the chaplain program is not a a division that is. Um, it's really by the by the will of the chief, and whoever wants to run our division uh, was in charge, right? It was basically whoever was the best um, religious person in the department took on the chaplains, <laughs> and so we moved from person to person. and And I said to them, you know, look, let me write a proposal that we wanted to have some buy in to the chaplain program. We wanted to be under the chief's office. We should have one of the chaplains be the head of the depart of the program, and then we report to a command staff officer. And uh, they accepted that proposal, and then they made me in charge. And that was back then, around 2002, 2003. And so I've been doing that ever since. Um, we have 10 chaplains. Uh, our job is to be there for officers. Uh, when I first started, most of the call-outs were for community members who suffered a traumatic death. And right. the officer that was handling that would call and would say to the family, can we call our chaplain for you? And, and that was fine, but really I was in it because I wanted to help officers. And eventually we really changed our mandate and our whole department changed. Um, as you know, police suicide is, is always been a big problem with law enforcement. And so our department created this program called incident support service, which is made up of three important units, um, peer support, chaplains, and mental health professionals. And the three of us, or not three people, but three different groups, uh, help our, our officers stay healthy, emotionally, spiritually healthy. I teach a class in the police academy on, for every recruit on how to maintain their, um, how to survive spiritually in law enforcement so that when they, they're in it, this is their first week in the department, and I want them to be healthy so that when they retire, you know, 27 years down the road or whatever it is, 
that they look back and say, this was a great career for me. That's my goal. And I teach them, I try and teach them how to do that, that first week in the academy. That's a very interesting uh, way to look at it. And I'm glad to, to hear, I was surprised to hear, or, or, or I don't know surprise. It was nice to hear that you have this kind of like three headed thing with the, 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 the spiritual side of it, the mental health side. And then I, I don't remember what the third was, but peer I, support, peer support. So I had a conversation recently, uh, last summer with, with a colleague of mine who, who served, um, served and still to some, in some capacity serves the law enforcement community here, not only in Southern New Mexico, but in El Paso. Uh, and this was somebody who actually, um, uh, was a missionary and got interested in, in serving the law enforcement community and actually took it upon himself to, got permission to go to the, actually the first academy my department ran. It was actually a certified deputy since 1995 and actually was full-time staff at some point. Um, mm. But he, and this is something I hadn't ever really thought about, but he mentioned kind of walking a fine line um, because you are working for a government agency and always having to, and I don't remember the exact verbiage, but mm-hmm. kind of had to not run afoul of the ACLU and, and he said, you know, if yeah. you notice, you don't see me going down the hall bonking people over the head with a Bible. Um, if right. people, if people want some spiritual guidance, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to give it. But just in the last few years, he was very heavily involved, uh, in, he was down in El Paso during the Walmart shooting and, and, and has served the FBI office down there. Um, and mm. he started a series and in my division came to our briefings once a week for, I don't know how, how long it was. Um, but it had to do with with officer wellness and us keeping you know kind of uh, making sure we stay healthy and 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 since then I, you know we've uh, my boss has gone a different direction they've actually started a new peer support team and they have uh, a mental health professional or two I think uh, who are on contract with us um, kind mm-hmm. of a long preamble but having said that if most of what is being done is peer support and and mental health services why do why do you think that law enforcement agencies continue to have and fire departments uh, continue to have chaplains Mm -hmm. on staff well first of all i think uh everything you say is really um something that's important to understand because we don't want to um hit people over the head with religion there are people who would be turned off by that and the last thing i want to do is turn off someone um because they think, oh, here comes the chaplain, right? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go on a ride along with him uh, or her um, because I don't want to, you know, be told that I'm not a good uh, religious person, a good Christian, a good Jew, whatever it is, right, a good Muslim. But so I don't use religion in my chaplaincy as much as I talk more about um, how are you, how are you holding up? How are you doing emotionally or spiritually? Um, but not spiritually as in religious, spiritually as in that all of us have within us our human spirits that motivate us to make the world better. And as a law enforcement officer, most, I hope all, but I'll say most law enforcement officers get into it because they want to make the world better. They want to help people. They're not in it for the paycheck. Hopefully they're not in it just to, you know, carry a a gun and, and, and go fast in their cars. They're in it to really make a difference in the world. And that's a calling, in my opinion, that when you're called to make the world better, that's a spiritual thing, not a religious thing, but a spiritual thing. And it's motivating, and it gives meaning to our lives 
when we can make an impact on society as a police officer and be a role model for the world. And so I want officers to understand that, and I want to protect their spirits and help them understand it's not about religion. It's about making sure that you um, understand kind of the bigger picture of what you're doing. That's a very, I, I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but I'm very happy with that explanation. Now, um, I had a little bit of a, a, a long preamble or run up to that final question. As we get towards the end here, and before I ask you to talk about um, the last thing I want you to talk about, um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that preparing for this episode and preparing for this interview has been very, I don't, wouldn't call it therapeutic for me, but it's kind of reminded me that, that I'm actually a little bit more normal than I've been, you know, being on this job for over 22 years and, you know, uh, the type of, you know, I, I don't, doesn't need to be talked about on the air, but the type of caseload I work for the most part, um, I've noticed over the last few years, I don't quite know the, the emotions don't always come at the right time. And I'll actually share something very personal. And I was talking to my wife about this, you know, this past summer in July when I saw you and, uh, you know, for, for my listeners who don't know, uh, in the Jewish tradition, uh, there's an unveiling of a, of a headstone or a gravestone approximately mm-hmm. a year after somebody dies. And you actually learned something new from you. And you said that this actually officially marks the end of the mourning period, which I always thought it was, it was Shiva. When you ended Shiva 10 days later, that was the right. end. But in any case, and mind you, the whole, and, we, and you and I have talked about this too, because my mother passed during COVID and I live 1,700 miles away, um, I did everything from afar and I said my goodbyes over uh, FaceTime and uh, watched her funeral on Zoom. So there was nothing about that that was normal and the grieving process wasn't normal. And I think I mentioned this when I spoke, but I was sitting um, when you unveiled the headstone and I had one sister on each side of me and my sisters are both crying and and I, I kid you not, my thought was, my, I, for a, just a fraction of a second, my thought is, what are they crying about? And then I reminded myself, why, you know, I, had to, I remembered why we were there. And so I'm more than aware of how kind of screwed up my emotions are. And, and you mm-hmm. know, I, I feel no emotion at times when most people do. And, and sometimes I cry for no reason. And, and, yeah. but, but writing this episode and... and you know, being reminded of what you mean to my family and to my parents and the relationship you had with my parents has kind of grounded me and make me feel a little bit more normal because I, I did have some emotion. Now, having said yeah. that, can you, I'd like you to just kind of explain the relationship that you uh, have had with my parents for about two decades and, and how, um, how it was being, being there and kind of maybe not physically because of, of the pandemic and still very early on in the pandemic, but what it meant uh, to be able to, to serve uh, my parents and my mother in her, her final days. Well, it's, uh, and now I'm getting choked up thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's your, your parents, um, are probably one of a handful of, uh, of people or two of a handful of people who, um, meant has meant the most to me at being a temporary shalom for these 20 some years. Um, your mom, was always reminded me of my mom, and I think that's why uh, I always connected with your mom. Um, she just was such a kind, gentle soul. Um, and even even when I would call her in her final days and we talked on the phone, she would want to know how my boys were doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I was calling to find out how she's doing, and she wants to know how I'm doing. Ever the Jewish and, mother, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, she would bring food to our choir rehearsals every week. She um, a banana bread, probably. I mean, what a what a kind soul. I just I can't tell you how meaningful that relationship was with your mom and your dad, who I see very much you and your dad very similar to each other. Um, your dad has always been kind of the rock, you know, of the family as I saw it. Um, you know, when, when he and, and your mom told me that you were a police officer, I could see that because I kind of saw your dad being in that way. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, if you ever felt that, but, um, you know, your dad was, was really just such a, or is such a strong guy. And I know he was, it's been really tough for him with Betty Anna not being, uh, not being around and having to lose her, especially during COVID and, um, what a terrible, uh, you know, traumatic event to go through losing a spouse for so long to something that you kind of feel like, wow, I wish I could help her and get her through this. Yeah, they were Um, married for 54 years, and that was such an odd, really odd, odd chain of events and an odd time. And, you know, I tell people, you know, my mother, I I tell people my mother did not die of COVID, but she died because of it. And um, Yeah, exactly. You know, without going into great deal, I guess I should mention for my listeners, uh, as you mentioned something about the choir, my mother was in the in the temple choir for probably 25 years, maybe even longer. Yeah. Um, so you guys yeah. obviously spent, you know, uh, a lot of time uh, with each other, and, and that's how you, you know, cultivated that relationship. But, Michael, we're running out of time. I want to thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. This has been, sure. um, you know, to be honest, many of my episodes, and I do, I because I try to keep it to about 45 minutes, I'm constantly looking looking at the time and seeing where I am on my sheet with all my questions. And, um <laughs> Sometimes I'm wondering, are we going to be able to fill 45 minutes? And that really wasn't not a concern at all here today. Uh, so I, I want to thank you. Um, have a have a happy Thanksgiving, happy holidays. I know Hanukkah is coming up. Um, I just want to thank you one more time for for doing this, and I'm glad we were finally uh, able to do so. Well, thank you for asking. I'm I'm really happy to be a part of this, and and I you know I I. I just want you to know, and I will underscore again, how important you and your family um, have been to me. And and, uh, it's a great loss not to have your mom around. And I'm sure when you have holidays that you celebrate, like Thanksgiving, it's especially time when you remember, you know, the blessings that your mom brought you in your life. And those were blessings that I always hope you, um, you know, share and um, pass on to your kids. Well, uh, because... That's the important thing. Well, uh, unfortunately, you know, we didn't start this podcast till a couple months after she left us. Um, who knows? Who knows where we go after this and where she is? But I, some part of me likes to think that she's heard every episode, and especially the, this episode, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this has been Cantor Michael Shockett of Temple Road of Shalom in Falls Church, Virginia, and um, this has been another episode of the Square Peg Podcast. Please tune in next week. We will have a brand new episode for you. We'll see you later. Hey, if you are having a wedding uh, and you need a photographer or videographer, if you are a local artist in the southern New Mexico or West Texas area and you uh, need a video, a music video made, uh, a real good place to go is my my friend Isaac Powell Fox's business, Palomore Productions. Uh, They're located pretty close to Las Cruces downtown. 
And uh, you can find them on Facebook. You can find them on Instagram and all those different places. Uh, you can also get them at uh, www.palamora.com for all your weddings, music videos, and anything else you need a professional videographer or photographer. The Square Peg Podcast, proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications. 